Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and today is January 5th, 2012. We're in a new year. Our guests tonight are going to be from Project Lazarus, which is a very successful overdose prevention uh, project that is located in North Carolina. Our guests are Fred Brayson and uh, Navarun Dasgupta. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. And for more information, you can go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guests tonight are Navarun Dasgupta and uh, Fred Brayson, and uh, they are here waiting to, waiting to start talking to us. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you doing? Good evening. Good well, well, to you. Well, I'm going I'm I'm to let Fred start off the discussion, and uh, hopefully uh, Fred and Nab will get going between them, and I won't have to talk too much here. But uh, Fred, give us a little background about... Uh, overdose in the United States. Has this been on the increase in recent years? The past uh, 10 to 12 years, it's been on a steady increase uh, in just about every state uh, in the United States, uh, primarily initially in the more rural uh, Appalachian area, Maine, New Mexico, uh, pretty much has been you know a rural issue, but now is increasing uh, in the urban centers, uh, affecting all uh, all population groups. Uh, this isn't uh, an issue that we can say is just involving one population group or just those folks over there. Uh, it's it's across the board, uh, male, female, uh, uh, mostly white, but definitely is affecting all races and uh, all economic uh, factors of people's lives. And is this uh, increase in overdose, is it primarily connected to illegal drugs or to prescription drugs? Uh, the, 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 the ones we are looking at are definitely linked to prescription drugs, uh, and uh, some of the individuals who unfortunately have died from an overdose, it can be from misuse from the prescription that they are supposed to have, and that there can be the abuse of someone who is using somebody else's prescription or their own and then adding something to it that unfortunately you know puts them in danger uh, uh, for an overdose. So we're talking about legal prescription drugs that are either being used illegally or uh, irresponsibly in a, in a misuse scenario. Okay. Uh, Nab, would you like to give us a little bit of background about Wilkes County, uh, how much overdose there is there compared to the rest of the state, and uh, a little background about the county itself and, uh, and the people and its history? Sure. My pleasure. Uh, Wilkes County is uh, in the... Foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in western North Carolina, pretty close to the Virginia border. And there's, it's a pretty rural place. Um, it's one of the larger landmass counties in the state. And the characteristics of the, of the community are really defined by its economy. And the uh, economy includes uh, chicken processing plants and, uh, and logging and other kind of Manual labor industries, and there's a substantial amount of military uh, families in the in the county as well. So, given all that, 
there's kind of a background need, uh, there's a background of, of painful injuries and chronic pain that have developed from a, from a long-term economy that's dependent on a lot of manual labor. So you combine that with the fact that Wilkes County is one of the birthplaces of NASCAR, and NASCAR is a sport that has a history that's intertwined with moonshining, and that's the original kind of uh, place where NASCAR arose. So what you get combining those together is a location that has had issues with substance use at the margins of the law for generations. Now, that's not the kind of thing that you can fix all the way overnight. So one of the things that we decided to do was focus on addressing the most severe consequences of prescription drug abuse and misuse, which is the overdose mortality. So that's what kind of led us to uh, target that as something we could intervene in. And the longer-term issues of addiction, substance use are so intertwined with the poverty, the economy, attitudes that are longstanding in the community that those may take, you know, years, decades, or even generations to uh, to to be changed in a way that this wouldn't happen again. So our approach is to balance both the, both the immediate, uh, to address the immediate consequences as well as the long-term, uh, the long-term societal changes that need to need to get shifted. Now, Fred, I saw that several agencies had joined together to form Project Lazarus. Uh, how did this work? How did this formation come about? And who are the agencies? Yeah, um, yeah a little history uh, will help. Um, I first became aware that there was an issue in Wilkes, not knowing it was any different than anywhere else. Uh, but back in 2005, I was director of our, our local hospice. And we began to have issues where prescribers were telling us they couldn't prescribe the appropriate medication to a certain household anymore because some of the drugs were disappearing. They were always calling for early refills. Uh, and upon investigation and us having to, you know, hide, you know, uh, medications in a home from other family members because it was either being stolen or shared or sold, uh, that's when I began to ask questions about, you know, what is this? You know, because it was, it was relatively new to me, even though I've you know been in you know healthcare for a good number of years, but I just never heard of people going into other people's medicine cabinets and helping themselves. Um, so as I began to ask questions and, and look into it, we realized statistically that there was an issue, and and that's where I got involved with with NAB and uh, another cohort, Kay Sanford, and, and looking at the data, and then realizing that we were having high overdoses, we were having high utilization. And we just decided as Wilkes County that we need to address the problem as Wilkes County. You know, it wasn't something that we could go somewhere else and say, well, how did you do this or how did you fix this or what model we could use because it's, you know, it, again, this has only really blossomed over, you know, as a problem over the past, you know, 10 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. So we just looked at ourselves as a community and said, all right, who are the influencers in our community? If we're trying to change an individual, their behavior, their thought pattern, uh, and lifestyle if necessary, but, you know, why do they do what they do? We had to look at those influencers, and those are the agencies, those are the community sectors that we said we need to bring them to the table, raise community awareness, and then start to work on individual strategies and action plans that these community sectors can work on to help change and influence that individual 
thinking pattern regarding prescription drugs and and possibly illegal uh, drugs too, and then what they should need to know about you know using them, not using them, storing them, getting rid of them, not sharing them. All of those factors we had to realize was a community paradigm shift that needed to occur. So as we brought those community sectors to the table, that was law enforcement, the medical community, um, the health department, uh, the faith community, uh, youth groups, whether it's 4-H, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, uh, the human service organizations, the civic organizations, Chamber of Commerce. I mean, it's affecting everybody, so we brought everybody that we could possible, possible to the table and then just started to show them what the facts are, what the reality is, what the issues are, and then started to work with each component, helping law enforcement get more training and diversion and to understand the prescription drug problem more, working with the medical community to help educate prescribers, working with the local hospital, faith community to understand addiction, to get their congregants to understand what to do with their medications, what not to do with them. So it was kind of working and the interworking of all of that, bringing them all to the table, and then it just sort of grew with everybody doing their part. Okay. Neb, um, Fred just mentioned diversion as one element. How does that work? Sure. Uh, diversion is a general term that means that someone is either selling a prescription uh, drug that they have obtained from a from a doctor's uh, prescription and kind of, you know, selling it to their friends or their coworkers or family uh, or even just sometimes giving it away. And now diversion is a legalistic term that uh, is a bit pejorative at times. And uh, it's just because there's a, it's, it's important to remember that there's a spectrum of behavior that could that happens around these prescription medications. For example, if I have uh, received some painkillers but didn't finish them for a broken ankle, and my wife has a toothache and can't sleep a couple months later, and I give her one of those tablets, that would technically be considered diversion, but it's within kind of the societal norms of what is allowed. Uh, or what you know, what people think is okay, and mm. when it comes to the work that we've done with law enforcement, and it goes beyond working with actual cops, but it's the mentality where the where when faced with the increases in overdose deaths and the dramatic need to do something, a lot of folks turn to law enforcement because that's what they've been conditioned to believe is the or the primary way to fight the war on drugs, so to speak. And one of the things that I think is has been successful for us is to take a step back and understand that you can't arrest your way out of an overdose problem. You know, you can't possibly lock up all your sons and daughters and expect this problem to go away if you're not doing other things. So... In harm reduction, we often don't pay enough attention to working with law enforcement, and uh, we were and we tried to actually bring them to the table and to the point where we were able to obtain a grant from the National Association of Drug Diversion Investigators, or NADI, and they uh, provided uh, a grant funding to hire a specialized diversion officer in uh, in Wilkes County, and what that person uh, was able to accomplish was to get trained on what is appropriate pain management as well as, you know, what are the signs of more criminal, you know, of more criminal economic diversion, large scale. 
And it's just as important for cops to understand that there are many people who need these medications and may be taking very large doses of them, but it's within the realm of medical care. And so just because someone has a few pills and it's not in a bottle or just because they're filling their prescription, you know, a little bit early or that they're getting a, a large number of pills doesn't make them a criminal. It could just mean that they're sick. And having that kind of sensitivity, I think, uh, was important. And the, the diver- you know, the, the legalistic kind of debate over what's diversion and what's illegal use and legal use is something that, you know, almost comes down to a case-by-case basis. And when it came to the work we wanted to do in terms of preventing overdoses, overdose deaths, we didn't we initially tried to make the determination for every single person who died, whether they are a drug abuser or a pain patient. Kind of those are the two ends of the spectrum that we're taught to believe are black and white. But what we found was that almost everybody falls in between. And so we kind of stopped, you know, in some ways wasting our time trying to put people into buckets and try to instead open our arms and see what we could do to help people where they're at instead of asking them to conform to certain standards before we would help them. Okay. Fred, um, what are some steps that you've taken towards supply reduction? What we've done, you know, regarding supply, because uh, unfortunately it's not, you know, all of this is not coming from somebody standing on a street corner selling vials and bags of pills. The majority, meaning 70% from national studies, is that individuals who are taking a prescription that was not theirs are getting it from a friend or a family member, either bought, stolen, or shared. So that's that's a hard supply to really put your hands on to stop. So uh, our, our way of approaching that was community education for individuals who are being prescribed to understand that you, you you take it correctly, you don't, you know, add another pill because you have more pain or, or anything like that. You can't do that with a lot of the medications today. You've got to take it correctly uh, and and teaching them how to, you know, make sure that they store it securely so that nobody else can get their hands on it using lock boxes, you know, hidden in specific places in a home, that type of scenario. And then, of course, to dispose of it properly when they're finished with the medication and not storing it for a rainy day and not, uh, you know, just keeping it around for somebody else to get their hands on and then bringing a lot of instruction about never, ever sharing your medication. You know, again, something that, as Nap had said, is just pretty much in society been okay. You know, if you had this for that and somebody else needs it for something else, it's kind of okay to share it. And we just can't do that with the level of medication that we have today because, you know, what one pill can help somebody can actually, you know, be detrimental and, and, and possibly deathly to another individual. So that's that's the community-wide approach of presenting education to the general community, all ages, about the new and different ways to handle your medications that you didn't think twice about before. Okay. Nab, what is naloxone? Uh, how is it used, and how do you get it to people? Tell us about that. Sure. Um, naloxone is as close to a miracle drug as modern, modern medicine has, and what it does is what it's it's been around for about 40 or 50 years and it's been used by uh paramedics and EMS to revive people who have had an overdose it's used in the emergency department at the hospital to 
to revive people who come in with an overdose, and it's also used by anesthesiologists to bring people out of the anesthetic block uh, in the operating room. So, given you know, it has a it has a it has a very powerful effect, and what it basically does is, if someone has, well, we should first start with what does an overdose on uh, on an opiate look like? So, by opiates we mean heroin uh, on the illegal side mostly, and on the prescription side, it's medicines like methadone, fentanyl, oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin, hydrocodone. There's a lot of names, but they all are very similar chemically, and they all act in a similar way in your body. So what happens when you take too much of these is that you, your breathing becomes slowed, your heart rate can slow down, and you don't get enough oxygen to, the, to your brain and to other organs in your body. So contrary to popular belief that a heroin or an opiate overdose involves shaking and seizures and fits, as was portrayed in Pulp Fiction, the reality is that a heroin overdose or a a prescription opiate overdose may simply look like someone is falling asleep. And so, you know, the first thing that we had to do was to educate everybody in the community, whether, you know, you're a caregiver or a pain patient or a drug user or or a parent or any of those combinations that of what an overdose looks like. And once you know what an overdose looks like, the thing with an opiate overdose is that there's a cure, and the cure is oxygen. The quicker you can get someone breathing, the less likely there is to be any damage and the more likely they are to survive. Now, naloxone basically helps you breathe. What it does is once you have too much opiate in your system and your breathing has slowed down, the naloxone enters your bloodstream, gets into your brain and your central nervous system, and basically kicks the oxycodone, the heroin, or whatever opiate it is, off of the receptors that they have been bound to within your brain and your uh, central nervous system and allows you to start breathing again. So you... Once the naloxone has been administered, within a minute, you're breathing on your own again at a normal rate, and you're getting enough oxygen, your organs are starting to feel better, you're, you're going to wake up, you're going to come too. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty amazing medication and has, like I said, a long uh, track record of safe use. And uh, the way that what was partially one of the most innovative parts of Project Lazarus is that we were able to take a paradigm that had existed in large cities in the United States and in Europe on how to prevent overdose among heroin injectors and bring that model to a rural prescription opiate-using population. And in the heroin uh, injecting overdose prevention model, uh, often what was done, and this was done and pioneered in cities like Chicago, San Francisco, Baltimore, and New York, and what, what was done is that you give, you provide heroin injectors who are coming to a needle exchange program with the uh, education on what an overdose looks like and then provide them with a vial of naloxone um, and teach them how to use it and how to use it properly. And doing this, 
for the last about 15 years, uh, the major programs in that work with the heroin injectors have reversed over 10,000 overdoses. I mean, just think about that for a second. 10,000 people who would have probably otherwise died who were saved because of the empowerment that was provided to them to actually save someone's lives. And it's a pretty powerful concept. And so uh, pharmacologically speaking, there's the naloxone works very similarly on prescription painkillers as it does on heroin. And so we were able to get some funding and were able to provide uh, the naloxone to uh, to folks in Wilkes County. And instead, because, like Fred said, we don't have a street scene and we don't have a needle exchange program, uh, the way we realized we need to distribute it was through uh, the local doctors. And this may seem a little counterintuitive at first, but the way we saw it was we had some data that showed that about 80% of the people who died of a prescription drug overdose in North Carolina had a prescription for that medication in the months prior to their death. So what that told us, you know, was that it's a missed opportunity for intervention that was occurring at that physician-patient encounter. And, you know, others may hear that statistic and say, well, the doctors need to be trained better and it's all up to the doctors. But, and you know, we do a lot of physician education and that's pretty, and that's a very important part of what we do. But at the end of the day, there's a there's a self there's self agency and responsibility at the individual level, and doing and being able to provide people with naloxone at the same time as they're getting their prescription pain medication seemed like a natural thing. There is no reason in our minds why it should be harder to get the cure or the 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 tool to prevent an overdose death from. Uh, it, that should definitely be easier uh, and should definitely not be harder than it would be to actually get the medication that could put you in that dangerous situation. So in our model, we basically, uh, anybody who is getting a prescription painkiller and has additional risk factors, such as they may have some metabolic disorders, kidney function problems, liver function problems, they are eligible to get the naloxone. Uh, people who are going through uh, methadone tr uh, treatment or buprenorphine, suboxone for addiction uh, are also uh, get the treatment. People who are in the emergency department and others are also eligible to get it. So we, um, so it's kind of a broad net that we're casting. And the other kind of explicit intention of the reason we did it this way instead of having, you know, focusing on kind of the more hardcore injector or uh, kind of the stereotypical drug user populations is that we wanted to reduce the stigma. And we didn't want this to be perceived as only a option for people who inject uh, prescription drugs. But, the, but our data were showing us that the folks who are dying are a heterogeneous mix of people who had been prescribed the medication and those who had not. So even, you know, I remember there was a particular um, incident where 
uh, this guy had broken his sternum in a motorcycle accident, had been discharged from the hospital with a bottle of painkillers, and came home, and this gentleman didn't have a substance use or abuse really history, and his pain was not adequately controlled, and the instructions on the bottle were simply take three, you know, take two to three uh, every three to four hours, and he, his pain got worse and worse, and a couple of pills didn't do it for him, and he took a few more, lost track of how many he had taken, and ended up dead. So, you know, there's situations like that where it's not, you know, maybe the patient could have been counseled better upon discharge from the hospital. Maybe there could have been other things that could have been done. But if that, if that gentleman had had naloxone in his house and his wife had known how to use it, then we wouldn't have to have told the story, and he would be around to continue riding his motorcycle. So are uh, patients that get uh, these uh, painkilling medications, are they, do they automatically get a prescription for naloxone too, or do they get recommended to get a prescription for naloxone, or how does that work? Uh, it's up to the physician, and different physicians have incorporated it this the model in different ways in their practice. And uh, we would like it to be an automatic thing eventually, but the, uh, but the medical community hasn't quite gotten there yet. For some of, for the majority of the community hasn't quite gotten there yet. But there are, uh, for example, in the buprenorphine clinic that operates in our town, uh, they regularly hand out uh, naloxone to almost every person uh, who comes in for treatment. So I think the, there's a growing understanding and, you know, it'd be great to have this be automatic and not have to be something that is a decision. But if you're getting the, the painkiller, hopefully you'll also get the antidote in case something goes wrong. Okay, just a couple more quick questions on uh, naloxone. It's also known as Narcan, correct? Yes, that's the brand name is Narcan. Um, the generic is called Naloxone, and it comes as a comes in, in the United States. It basically comes in two forms. One is a liquid injectable that comes in a little vial that has a rubber stopper on it. And in that case, what you do is you uh, you open the case of the uh, you open the box that the vial is in, and you stick a syringe into the liquid and draw up um, the naloxone and inject it uh, intramuscularly. What that means is that you can shoot it into someone through their clothes. It can be in any fatty or big muscle part of the body, and including the butt or the shoulders, the thigh, uh, a bunch of different places are totally acceptable. But we also understand that some people are not comfortable having those needles around. And to be very explicit about it, the needles that are used for doing these intramuscular injections are not the ones are, are not the right size uh, of needles that are preferred for injecting heroin or other drugs like that. So uh, all syringes are not created the same, but there's still a general uh, fear of these medical delivery devices. And so instead, what we have done, uh, and this is definitely, you know, we didn't take any decisions between just Fred and Kay and myself. Everything was done with uh, engaging community boards to make decisions in terms of 
educating them on, you know, here's the pros and cons of having the intramuscular liquid injection versus the intranasal um, formulation, which is what they eventually settled on. And that formulation is basically a uh, it's a syringe that doesn't have a needle, so it's like a plastic, the plastic part of the syringe, and it's filled uh, comes pre-filled with two milliliters of naloxone, and you attach a nasal adapter to it, which basically turns the syringe into a nasal spray. So that's what uh, that's the type of the kit that we hand out now. And some of the trade-offs have been that it took us longer to get the project started because the uh, nasal spray is a lot more expensive, almost six, seven, eight times more expensive than the uh, ha- having the intramuscular kind of naloxone. So it's all a trade-off, and uh, it was quite a achievement for the community boards to understand enough of the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data and all the other kind of implications and come to a decision of what they wanted. Okay, one last question on the naloxone. Uh, when people get this injection, I mean, it brings their breathing back, So, but you said it kicks off all the opiates off the receptors in the brain. Did, the, did they get a return of pain? Did they get withdrawal symptoms? Do they have bad reactions that way? Sure. Um, it really depends on how much of the opiate you had been doing uh, when you overdose. Now, someone who has been on uh, chronic pain medication for a decade or for at least many years is going to have a higher kind of volume of the pain medicine built up in their system. And for them, if you give them too much naloxone or give it too quickly, they may have a sharp increase in the in their pain because the naloxone kind of blocks because their body has grown accustomed to having the painkiller around. And so they, they might feel pretty miserable. If you have, uh, if you overdosed your first time that you used an opiate, uh, it's a sad thing, but you probably won't experience a whole lot of withdrawal when you get uh, brought back with the naloxone. So some people will definitely uh, have some withdrawal symptoms, but at the end of the day, withdrawal is better than dead. And one of the things that, you know, that is often left out of the, left out of the conversation when we talk about responding to overdoses is what you do with the person after they have survived an overdose. And this kind of goes back to the withdrawal stuff. I mean, in the short term, what you need to do is comfort the person if they are in withdrawal you know, if they're cold and shaking and sweating, then get them a blanket. But it's important for you to stay with the person so they don't immediately try to do more and put themselves back in an overdose. And, um, you know, that kind of the, 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 care, the aftercare that's needed for overdose survivors starts at the moment of those withdrawal symptoms and things like that. But it also extends, you know, days and weeks and months down the line, too, where you know, there may be uh, emotional fallout from having had this pretty intense traumatic experience. There might be financial fallout for missing work or for a trip to the emergency room and having to pay for that. Um, there could be legal issues if if there was some police involvement. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of difficult decisions and difficult needs that come. 
that come for, to an overdose survivor, and you know, just as important as it is to stay with them through the withdrawal process in the acute phase right after withdrawal, it's just as important to stay with them over the next, over the coming weeks and months, and make sure that they are emotionally okay with what they have experienced. And sometimes they'll need to talk about it, and sometimes they'll need to forget about it. And that's the kind of care that we can all provide that doesn't cost us a penny, but it's something that's compassionate and the right thing to do. Okay. Now, Fred, um, well, you sent me a an article that was in the journal Pain Medicine, which is where I'm getting some of my questions from, in case the audience is wondering. So uh, in, in this article, you talked about face-to-face meetings with with physicians, doctors, medical providers. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. What we uh, in in bringing our community together and looking all the uh, all the community sectors, in the process of doing that and beginning to build awareness uh, across the community spectrum, uh, our local Medicaid authority, which in North Carolina is set up as a as kind of a a, a medical management system, uh, and they're done in regions so that each region can address those specific issues that might be within those communities. And our Medicaid authority here, Northwest Community Care Network, uh, was looking at the Medicaid population and seeing, you know, a lot of Medicaid recipients. There was, you know, high overdoses, high uh, prescription drug utilization through the scripts and the pharmacies, and wanted to address it to see if if good medical management might sort of, you know, reduce the uh, mortality among Medicaid recipients and uh, keep those that are receiving, you know, safer. So uh, what we put together in doing that was uh, a prescriber's, a physician's toolkit, uh, basically some information on managing a chronic pain patient, uh, prescribing methods, and methods to monitor and to keep your patient safe, like using a prescription monitoring program, like we have in here in, in North Carolina called the Controlled Substance Reporting System. And essentially what that is is all controlled substances dispensed from a pharmacy go into a database, a prescriber can look into that database and see their uh, the history of that patient to see if they've been to other physicians getting the same drug uh, or other physicians getting a different drug that might have a you know adverse effect if the two were put together, uh, just basically to keep them safe. Uh, in in utilizing that toolkit, uh, we, our medical director for Project Lazarus and the county uh, actually did, we did lunch and learns in all the physician practices to sit down with them bring them aware of the issues that were going on in the community, whether it was their, you know, patients or not, and then walking through that physician's toolkit so that they could learn more about, you know, chronic pain management, the the special needs of those patients, because the majority of chronic pain patients aren't being out with specialists. They are in basic family, general practice, local physician groups. So we were helping them uh, obtain more information, uh, the different prescribing methods as far as the safety factors, how to monitor the patients. And then those Medicaid patients that hit a certain threshold, we were basically locking them into one primary care physician and one pharmacy so that they were better case managed without denying them care. And that's how that began to work, and that's how we worked, you know, with that population. So it was keeping them safe. It was, you know, making sure that the supply was adequately there for everyone who needs it, you know, denied for those who don't need it, and then monitoring them through the process to make sure that they were safe, not overdosing, and that they were taking it correctly and understood the dangers of the medication if they overused it or used it differently than how it was prescribed. So that was essentially how that came about. 
so that we could sit down and, you know, bring in the experts for, you know, physicians are required to have so many uh, um, uh, continuing medical education units per year, so we brought in experts on prescribing, on opioids, on chronic pain management, on managing that chronic pain patient. Uh, so, again, it's just from the local level, bringing it to them face-to-face, here are the issues, here's the reality. We have people dying in Wilkes County that shouldn't be. It is preventable. We just want your assistance, you know, in working with that without, again, denying care, making sure that everybody who's got chronic pain, who has issues, has access to care, and they're not denied the medication that they need. Okay. Nab, I see a reference here in the paper about school-based education and pledge cards. Can you tell me about that? Sure. There's uh, there are a lot of different ways to engage the younger folks in the community, and this goes back to what I was saying before about needing kind of system-wide societal changes in attitude. And we have developed a school-based curriculum, and uh, we have someone on our staff who goes into all the schools and does a great presentation. And it's different from DARE, it's different from other traditional kind of drug abuse prevention models where, you know, a lot of it's, you know, on the, at the earliest ages, you don't need to necessarily talk about the details of, of the different drugs, but you can start by encouraging that people don't, that kids don't share their medications with each other, no matter what medication it is. And um, so starting there with the youngest groups, and you know, there's over the over the last few years, we've tried a lot of different uh, ways to reach kids, and um, and you know, the pledge cards were something that maybe Fred can talk about, but it was something that we tried and didn't quite uh, didn't quite pan out like we had wanted to. So uh, I don't know that that's a particularly useful strategy for us at the moment, but. You know, at the end of the day, there's only so much that you can tell a community to do, and a lot of times they have to go through and make those mistakes for themselves and see what works for them and what doesn't. And with the school-based education, you know, it's there's a lot there's there isn't a whole lot that we know that works, and we know that in some place in some instances, dare actually may increase the risky uh, drug use among kids. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we're very careful with how we do it, and we don't want to fall into those traps. But we also, uh, we're also kind of, you know, trying to invent things as we go along and seeing whether they work. And sometimes when they don't, we put them back on the shelf. And um, so, but maybe I know Fred works more directly with the schools. Uh, maybe he can uh, tell us about the experience he had uh, going into. Um, to a band meeting recently. Yeah, and and just to to clarify on the pledge cards, it's 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 in what we've been doing and what we've learned. That's kind of the wrong word because a pledge card, somebody's going to immediately think, well, you got the kids to sign that I'm never going to do drugs. Uh, and you know, I I think that's been tried now for about 40 years and and still has not kept kids from you know trying drugs. Uh, what we developed with the pledge cards was basically a card with the information going back from the student to the parents, the family, the caregiver, the guardian, whoever it may be, and acknowledging that they're signing that they at least saw the information and then they had a conversation. Now, because that's more of just bringing awareness to the dangers without saying don't do drugs, 
um, and 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 just making sure everybody's getting on the same playing field and understands and kind of bridging the gap between parents and kids in that discussion that you know a lot of people unfortunately don't want to have, but uh, today we we do have to have. Uh, so that that was kind of our uh, approach with you know what, what really isn't called a pledge card anymore. It's just you know an informative card uh, that we're you know we working with the students and and so forth. And what's what happened recently uh, that Nav is referring to uh, a, a local school had, that we work with you know quite frequently. We work with all of them, with all the school counselors, school nurses, school social workers, just to help out wherever we can and and bringing more you know tools and training. Uh, called me to into a school situation because unfortunately two young people in the high school had overdosed. Thankfully, they they did uh, get to the hospital in time and were revived. And uh, but you know everybody then realized the parents and so forth and other kids in the high school that you know we have an issue here. And they just asked me to come in just to talk, just to get down face to face and just talk about the issues, talk about prescription drugs and the dangers, and in doing so, you know, I mean, I could tell that the, the, the group of kids that I was talking to, they knew something was up, they knew something was going on because I had their complete attention. You know, it was like, you know, you, when, when you have a room full of uh, high school students, you normally couldn't hear a pin drop, but in this scenario, yes, I did. And about halfway through, this young lady raises her hand and says, can I share something? And unbeknownst to me, I had no idea this was a young lady who she was the one who had overdosed two weeks prior and was her first day back at school and emotionally she broke down but she wanted to tell her story and she told her story um, uh, about being involved in the prescription drugs uh, her her, her life-threatening issue and that she was now getting help and you know of course I encouraged her to say you know this is not a shameful thing You're, you're being brave you're being heroic in bringing this out and, of course, when you're talking peer-to-peer, student-to-student, that is definitely going to resonate more than, you know, some adult standing up front. Um, so in that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's going to help those kids, and we're going to need more of that, you know, going forward. But one, one of the important factors was I asked her, after she composed herself, I said, if one of your friends had told you, don't do that when you were taking the prescription medications, would you have listened? And her answer was, early on, I would have listened. But once I had it, once I was using it, once I was attached to it, no way. And that's the the nature of addiction, that you can't just suddenly wake up Monday morning and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, It takes uh, life support from individuals around you, and it takes sometimes more, you know, uh, immediate care, whether it be, you know, suboxone, buprenorphine, methadone, something else to kind of get through the process of, you know, getting off the opioids and, you know, getting your life turned around. But those are the kind of instances that come up in the local community that our comprehensive uh, approach enabled us to be there for that. And and, and that's one of the things that uh, I believe, you know, helps make Project Lazarus successful. One of the problems with the more traditional uh drug uh, education programs like D.A.R.E. and so forth, is that they seem to want to scare people away from all drugs and say they're all equally dangerous. And then kids find out, you know, marijuana is not as dangerous, for example, as uh, heroin. And is there any way that you uh, deal with that? 
in, in, in talking with, you know, the, the students in the schools, you know, our approach is not the scare tactic. Um, I, you know, I myself and, you know, back in high school, we all took driver's ed and we all saw the film clips of the horrible accidents, you know, from people speeding and driving incorrectly. That didn't stop me from getting a speeding ticket. Now, um, and, uh, and we take the same approach that, you know, an individual can make a sound decision if they are presented all of the information. And, and that's kind of our approach. Here's what the reality is. There are people dying from prescription drug misuse and abuse. And invariably, when I talk to a group of students, there's about four, five, six out of 30 whose heads will go down and I'll lose eye contact because they've either got issues themselves or something's going on at home. So it's not a hidden item. It's, it's, it's something that they're well aware of. And with the Internet today, we, we have to believe and we know that, you know, from middle school on up, they are very much tuned in to what the realities are that Michael Jackson and the drugs and Heath Ledger and the drugs and Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and all of those issues, they are all well aware of that, and it just raises the curiosity. So we're not going to scare them away from it. We have to intelligently provide them information that they can make sound decisions on and realize the dangers that are reality and there, and then hopefully if they do have life issues that might steer them in that direction, we can have more intervention and prevention to help them through that. Okay, that sounds good. Neb, um, how does drug treatment fit into this? So I think the, um, you know, we started by talking about supply reduction. We've talked a little bit about harm reduction. And I think the third pillar of what we do is, uh, is demand reduction. And when we first started working in uh, trying to prevent overdoses in Wilkes, one of the we looked around and realized that we had one detox clinic that was pretty uh, full and, you know, didn't, wasn't providing uh, enough services for enough people. And the history in this particular area was that a few years before, a methadone clinic had tried to open, and there was a lot of uh, opposition from different uh, parts of the community. And it turned out that that methadone clinic didn't have the right approach in terms of it was for profit and had kind of other personality issues and the community wasn't ready for it. The community hadn't acknowledged that there was an overdose problem and that demand reduction could be part of that, could be part of the response. And so the work that we have done over the last few years is to get to, you know, to present the community with viable and proven options for addressing the overdose problem. I think there's some really interesting data that comes from, that came originally from France and then uh, has, has also been replicated in a handful of cities across the United States where you, you know, it's kind of almost like this curve, it's like this graph that looks like an X. And as the number of people who are getting addiction treatment with either methadone or buprenorphine goes up, the number of overdoses goes down, and the graph and the lines cross in the middle on the graph, and it's a pretty powerful, uh, pretty powerful experiment that was done in France to make uh, buprenorphine, uh, particularly suboxone, or uh, it, what we call in the U.S. suboxone, uh, available very widely uh, to anybody who needed addiction treatment, and we wanted to try something like that in Wilkes County because we knew that harm reduction, supply reduction, and educating doctors wasn't going to be enough because 
uh, oftentimes people didn't have anywhere to go if they were being told, no, you can't have any more drugs. So I think uh, the we were able to invite a uh, buprenorphine clinic into the community that started off as a satellite office from a larger town nearby, and you know which was only open three days a week initially, and uh, now they're open full time. Are there you know every there's doctors there every day treating people, and what was it like we're up to like 250 or something people who've gotten the treatment or who are getting treatment at any given time. Is that right, Fred? Something yes, like that's that. correct. Yes. And, you know, that's up from zero uh, for kind of evidence-based medic- medically-assisted treatment. And so the demand reduction portion of it, I think, is incredibly important. And just as an example, you know, there's if you look at, the, uh, look at President Obama's prescription drug abuse prevention plan or response uh, that the Office of National Drug Control Policy put out, one of the key things that the, that the plan wants to do is to, you know, crack down on doctors who may be misprescribing or prescribing for profit or criminally prescribing these pain medications. Now, in our community, we had a very interesting experience where we had a doctor who we were pretty certain was, uh, was misusing his license and uh, prescribing painkillers for cash and for, uh, you know, not in the practice of medicine. And the medical board uh, eventually uh, shut him down, but while he was still, uh, you know, allowed to practice medicine, we knew that his, that the people coming into his office were not always just pain patients, but people who are maybe using mostly to get high and not, and dealing with pain on the side. And, but none of those folks were overdosing and dying. After he lost his license, it was only then that we saw his patients start dying from overdoses. And now this is kind of this paradoxical effect where you would, where you know the traditional mentality would say that oh you turned off the supply of drugs to these folks they you know why are they they should have less overdose but we saw the exact opposite because what we found was that once he lost his license, his patients had nowhere to go. And some of those folks had very strong, uh, painful, con- uh, severe painful conditions that they needed treatment for and had to resort to treating their own pain the best way they could, uh, which included, you know, borrowing and taking medicines from their friends. And there were people who had a more addiction-type dependence and who didn't have a place to go to get treatment. Uh, for for their addiction. So based on that experience, there, it was kind of a eye-opening time where we realized that we need to have local treatment options available and accessible to folks. And especially when, you know, this is one of those very uh, explicit intersections between supply reduction policies and harm and demand reduction policies where doing the you know taking a supply reduction approach by shutting down a doctor who may be misprescribing without providing the safety net of where are these people going to go uh, was a mistake and you know those are the kinds of policies that may look good from afar from Washington or from your state capital but when you're in the local community and you know the individuals who are scrambling to eat, to find either addiction treatment or pain 
uh, pain treatment in this situation, the story becomes one of compassion and trying to help people out one-on-one. And having the tools of buprenorphine and methadone to help people through their withdrawals and through their addiction, I think, is a powerful and important part of what we've been able to do. Okay. Fred, I'm going to ask you, uh, just jumping off from this idea that we were just talking about, um, do people wind up mixing medications uh, with other medications to make it more dangerous or mixing pain medications with alcohol? Does that increase the chance of overdose? Yes, Uh, and and we've been looking at the script histories of those who have unfortunately overdosed to see what the trends are. You know, is it just one drug only, and are they overdosing, or is it a combination of, say, your painkillers, your opioid medications, and then your benzodiazepines, your uh, Xanaxes, and your antidepressants and uh, anti-anxiety medications. And uh, unfortunately, it usually is a combination factor, uh, though there usually is one primary and then one secondary Uh, And in talking with medical examiners and the history of the person, uh, alcohol is usually always involved, though it's not necessarily listed on the death certificates at all because it wasn't, you know, something that was a factor in the death. But when you put in the combinations of oxycodone and somebody taking some Xanax and then somebody having a little cocaine with that and then something to drink, all of those are factors that can put somebody at risk for an overdose, and unfortunately, that is part of the scenario. Not so much the misuse, other than people not being aware that, you know, if you're taking uh, an oxycodone, roxycodone, hydrocodone, or something along those lines, and then you have your Xanax or other, you know, uh, you know behavioral health uh, medications, uh, putting the two together, that's one of those at-risk factors that we say if somebody needs to be prescribed that, they need to know, make sure that they take it exactly as they're supposed to and make sure that they are aware of the signs and symptoms of overdose and utilizing naloxone if necessary. That's all part of it. Okay, Nab, uh, let me ask you, uh, what efforts are being made to educate the community at large? Are you using radio or newspaper or billboards or anything to inform, you know, the general public about these things? Well, all three of the above, actually. Um, We have radio spots and uh, radio interviews that we have done with local stations. Um, There are billboards that have gone up with uh, different prevention messages. Um, And there's a billboard that we're planning for uh, in the next couple months to alert people to get the naloxone from their doctors and to ask their doctors and demand from their doctors to get uh, the naloxone. So definitely that part of it has been there. Uh, one of the more innovative things that we did was during DEA's Red Ribbon Week, which is a week in, uh, it's in October, I think, or November, right. and uh, and they and it's a week when it's, there's supposed to be a, a bit of a focus on prescription drug abuse and other issues uh, similar. And one of the things that we did was we had a brochure made up that uh, that uh, it's something maybe you've seen already, but it has a picture of a uh, young girl, and it has uh, the 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 line is something like she gets her eyes from her grandmother, or no, her eyes from her mom, her nose from her dad, and her meds from her grandma's medicine cabinet. 
something along those lines. But it's a pretty captivating image, and the message is pretty simple. And we were able to get a uh, local fast food chain, Biscuitville, to put a coupon for a free drink uh, onto the bottom of this little poster or flyer. And we were able to convince the pharmacies in the county to attach that to every prescription that went out during that week, which was, you know, some 5,000 prescriptions or something like that. So, uh, so you know, we've taken many different approaches to getting the message out. And, you know, there's, as you can tell from this conversation, there's a lot of things that can be done. And the etiology of the overdose problem is very complex. And so, you know, we have to repeat different parts of the message at different times and it's not realistic for to expect one person is going to get all the information at one time so uh we tried to we tried to kind of repeat pieces of it through different channels and you know sometimes we hammer on one issue if we think that's what's needed but uh, but we try to we try to keep it diverse okay Fred, do you think uh, that the pharmaceutical companies are at fault at all for trying to increase sales too much? I'm not so sure that that's that's an issue um, because again, you know, they they can you know, and obviously they have the right to to advertise and promote, um, but it is it is the prescriber that determines you know what drug and for what reason to that patient. But nobody can control the individual once they pick up that prescription from the pharmacy and walk out the door. That's where the changes happen. That's where the diversion happens. That's where the misuse and abuse occur. And that's why we approach it from a, a community level. Uh, and that's not to say, again, we're, we've become an instant on society. It's, you know, if I need something to wake up, I'm going to take it now. If I need something to go to sleep, I'm going to take it now. If I have a pain, I'm going to take something to be pain-free now. Uh, and, and that's just some of the paradigm shifts that we need to kind of roll back a little bit to to not be so intensive on the medications, to but to be aware that they're there, they're available, used correctly, they're wonderful. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's also uh, important to point out that most of the medications that people are dying from are generics, and there isn't like a real promotion or promotional push behind them. So right. you know the. And then there's very specific rules that the FDA has. You know, I'm sure you've never seen a TV ad for uh, OxyContin or for any of these other pain medications because those direct-to-consumer ads are not allowed. So, you know, it, it's like Fred said, you know, an individual decision that a physician has to make and even more a individual uh, responsibility that the patient has to assume in order to educate themselves on how to take the medication properly. Well, actually, I haven't seen TV ads for a long time because I gave up television about 20 years ago because it was too too addictive for me. <laughs> well, and maybe there'll I, be a drug for that someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about running out of time. I want to thank you, Nab and Fred, very much for being our guests this evening. Our pleasure. Thank, thank you, you very much for the opportunity. And everyone, uh, come back next week. We're going to have a special show on Wednesday evening where we're going to have Jeffrey Dywood talk about his book on the war on drugs. It's called World War D. And then on Thursday, we will be having Pat Denning 
will be our first guest to talk about the second edition of Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. And then Gabrielle Glasser, who has a new book coming out soon called Uncorked. It's about women and alcohol in the United States. And thank you, everyone, and good night. <laughs>